It's good to see you, church family. I want to say thank you so uh, much from the bottom of my heart, all of you who've been praying for me and my family this week. I woke up on Tuesday with some kind of sinus infection or allergy response or something, but it was uh, so severe, it pretty well laid me up until Friday morning, and I'm still recovering uh, somewhat, but Bethany and the kids have stayed, uh, stayed healthy, so we appreciate your prayer. If you want to know how rough whatever I got hit with was, uh, this morning it came time for me to leave, and I've got all my stuff together, and I go to get my keys and I can't find my keys. They're not where I picked up my wallet. My wallet, my phone, they're in my pockets. Can't find my keys. Uh, I look around for a good five to ten minutes. I can't find them. Bethany and Jesse then jump in the fray to try to help me find my keys. Spent 20 minutes looking for my keys this morning. And, and after having checked everywhere in the house, I can think to check, I just kind of put my hands in my pockets in despair, and there were my keys where I put them when I put them with my wallet in my pocket. And so I tell you that to say, uh, if that's the kind of week that it has been, it also serves as a wonderful, ironic transition into the fact that it is easy to forget common things. Uh, it is easy to forget that you put your keys in your pocket when you've had a long week. It is easy to forget, especially if you have been a believer for a long time and been a part of a local body of Christ, it is easy to forget the reason why we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And it is easy to walk through the celebration of the Lord's Supper in a way that is just rote and we do it, we check it off, good, we've done it, we'll do it next in so many weeks. And that completely and totally misses the point of very specifically, not just why we're here to worship this morning, but why this particular morning we are here to worship through taking the Lord's Supper. So by way of helping us to remember, I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, and we're going to pick up in chapter 11. You can see the passage on the screen, and you can see the Pew Bible if you're using one of our Pew Bibles. Taking a one-week break, next week we will pick up at the end of Revelation with our Eternity series, and we will see the new heaven and new earth. But the only reason we get there is because of what we celebrate today. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, pick up with me. We're going to pick up in verse 23. Verse 23 is where we're going to start. It says this, Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. He says, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul writes and says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. 
Now, Paul is in a section in 1 Corinthians, if we were to broaden out, he is in a section in 1 Corinthians where he is dealing with, with the proper order, the proper way of life for a local church. And as we'll see here in a little bit, he is, he is correcting some problems that have arisen in the unity and the fellowship in the daily life of the local church. In the midst of this section, he is writing to to help them turn back. In fact, earlier, he will tell them in verse 2 of chapter 11, he will say, I'm, I'm so thankful, I praise you that you have remembered the traditions. You've remembered the teachings, the details that I taught you. But in the section right before this, as he begins to, to, to look at how they are misusing the Lord's Supper, he says, I cannot praise you because you have not remembered correctly what this all means, which tells you and I this. All of this today is about remember. You notice he says, do this, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. And we need to all understand it's possible to remember the details, but not actually remember the heart of the matter of what we're doing. So Paul's writing to correct this, and he says, when I was with you, uh, church in Corinth, I, I, I shared with you, I, I helped establish among you that which the Lord gave me, and he reminds them the historical basis for what we're doing, that the night before Jesus goes to the cross, he and his disciples there in an upper room in Jerusalem, they will celebrate uh, the Passover feast together. They will have what we call the, the last supper, the last meal that Christ has before he goes to the cross. And it comes time in that meal and he, he takes the bread, which would have in that time and culture reminded of God's provision for the people of Israel in the wilderness with manna from heaven as he was in the process of providing for them and refining them in between Egypt and taking them to the promised land. And when Jesus would have taken that bread that reminds of God's provision, he breaks it and says, this is my body. He says, I, I am God's provision. It is not remembering the bread of manna in the wilderness. I am God's provision. I am God's provision for life. It is my very body, which will, just like this bread, will be broken, will physically suffer, will be rended on your behalf. And he takes the cup and says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now, the new covenant would have a rich old Testament backgrounds. You can go to places like Jeremiah 31 where God point blank says, there is coming a day when I will make a new covenant. Today, my, my discipline inside of the old covenant with my people Israel is being poured out, but I'm, I'm telling you a day is coming when there will be a new covenant, and this new covenant will be different. In this new covenant, the law will not be written on tablets of stone, but I will take my very law and I will write it on your very heart, and it will dwell within you. You will be transformed. Jesus says, it is my blood. This cup represents my blood, which is going to be shed. Like the Passover lamb whose, whose blood would be placed on the doorpost and the angel of death would pass over, pass by, and leave those inside alive, so it will be my blood, which is not rubbed on the doorpost, but for anyone who comes to me in faith, trusting who I am and what I do on their behalf, it is my blood which will completely and totally cover them. It is 
my blood which will pay the price, my blood which will be offered as the sacrifice to meet the price of God's justice on sin. It's my blood which will be shed because there can be no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. Jesus says, this cup is my blood which brings about the new covenant. And he says, do this as often as you do this. Now, we need to understand we, we do it in remembrance. When we come to the table in a little bit, we, there's nothing mystical. There's nothing, for us, we're, we're eating a, a cracker and having some grape juice. But while there may not be something mystical about what we're actually eating, there is something serious and spiritual about what they cause us to remember. We do this in remembrance. As often as we do it, we're given freedom in how often we do it. Jesus doesn't say how often we should do it, but He says as often as you do it, you do it in remembrance of Me. We remember. And here's what we remember. Paul says as often as we do this, as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death. When you and I come to the table later on, what are we remembering? We're remembering the fact that you and I, by nature, we are born sinners by nature. Because we are sinners by nature, we act sinfully. We commit actions of sin. We know from last week that God, who is a just judge, would cease to be a just judge if if our sin was not held accountable. It's not that he's some flaming tyrant in the sky who's watching every little thing to try to, 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 try to pick apart. He's a just judge. And all of our deeds, they, they go in a book. And those deeds, when one day every human stands before God and says, God, look at all the good I've done. Give me what I deserve. Scripture's very clear that what the just wages of all of our work of sin is worthy of eternal death. So you and I are born dead in our trespasses and sin, in rebellion against God, in accordance with, with Satan's plan for the world, whether we think we are or not. We are born in a helpless plight, but God rich and abounding in mercy, with the great love with which He loved us, God's first response to our rebellion was not to enact judgment, otherwise none of us would be here. The first response was to enact the plan of redemption, the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, as we've seen in Revelation, and God would send the perfect sacrifice, His one and only unique Son, the only one who's fully God and fully man as fully man can live the life we have failed to live and cannot live, as fully man can represent us, as one who is fully God, he can go upon a cross and he can receive eternal wrath, hell, in a finite amount of time because he is the one and only unique Son of God, Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. 
who it says in Scripture is the propitiation for our sin, meaning this, that our, our sin, there needed to be a, a sacrifice that would pay the price for our sin, but not just pay the price, but would reconcile two parties who were at odds, God and us. He is the propitiation for our sin, the atoning sacrifice so that we can be reconciled to God, brought back into a right relationship with God, our Creator, the one for whom the, the, the soul of every human longs. Eternity has been set upon our hearts. And when we're reconciled to God, we're not simply just saved from our sin and its consequences and death. We are saved from that so we can be saved to God, who then adopts us through the blood of Jesus into His family. Sons and daughters, co-heirs with Christ. The impacts of, of this, this Salvation offered in Jesus Christ through His blood, whereby grace in His good, unmerited, undeserving favor toward us, we are, we are saved, and that grace comes through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Scripture speaks that this salvation, we are regenerated. Where once we were broken, dead in trespasses and sin, we were a sinner in our identity. Now the old has gone. It's been crucified with Christ. It's dead. It no longer exists. The new has come. We're no longer sinner. We're saint. Holy ones, chosen, God's people, son, daughter of the Most High God. He regenerates us makes us new. He justifies us, makes us right. He's working it all out in our lives through what we call sanctification right now presently for those of us in Christ and all of us. We don't just proclaim, we don't just presently proclaim the reality of the Lord's death. The Lord's death wasn't the end. He didn't stop it. And, and when He died on the cross, He went to the grave and He rose again. He ascended to heaven where He sits at the right hand of God, mighty to save any who would come. And we proclaim the reality of his death and resurrection. Do you see what it says? Until he comes. We anticipate his return while he will bring about our salvation fully and we will be glorified. This is what we proclaim when we come to the Lord's Supper. This is what we remember. It's not just going, well, Jesus died for me. Yes, do we, but do, do we remember? Do we understand what it means that Jesus died on our place? Paul says we remember, but we don't just remember. We examine. Look with what, what he says in verse 27. In light of what we're remembering, therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Put another way, who, whoever comes... To, to, the, to partake of the Lord's Supper and does so living a life that is unbefitting that of one who has experienced the redemption of Christ, that one will be seen to be guilty. And so what, what should we do? It says, but a man must examine himself. Present tense, by the way, meaning we should live a life where there is a constant observation and examination of our character and manner of life, but a man must examine himself, and in doing so, out of that examination, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he doesn't judge the body rightly. Meaning if we come to the Lord's, to the Lord's table haphazardly, casually, not really serious about the reality of the Lord in our lives, that there is a discipline from the Lord that He has every right to pour out in our lives. And this was taking place with Corinth. Paul says, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number of sleep, meaning some have even died, because you're not taking seriously the reality of what Christ has done. And so you come to the Lord's Supper in just a flagrant um, casualness. It says, but if we have judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so we will not be condemned along with the world, meaning that as a believer, when God steps in and, and there's consequences, it's not because we're being judged in final judgment. It's because God is lovingly disciplining us to make us and conform us into the image of Christ. Meaning this, Jesus takes this seriously. And here's the beautiful reality of the Lord's Supper. Anytime we partake in it, it's a serious thing. Because what Jesus did on the cross is a is the most serious thing. It's also a wonderful and freeing thing. Because this table does not say, clean yourself up and come in your best dress. This table says, come just as you are. It's a table of grace that no amount of our best effort will ever deserve. It's why it says not examine yourself to see if you are worthy of it. None of us are worthy of the table. But He is worthy of our lives. And so we examine ourselves. What do we mean by examine ourselves? What we remember, we remember to what Jesus has done on our behalf. Paul twice in the letter to Corinth says, you were bought with a price. In relation to here, you're over here and you're, you're, you're dabbling in things that are sinful. You're dabbling in things that are, uh, that, 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 that are grievous to the Holy Spirit, to the heart of God. You're bought with a price. You're not your own. We examine personal things. When we come to the table and in, in, and in a moment we'll have a time of invitation. An invitation is a great time of examination. Maybe instead of standing and singing, you just sit and pray. Or maybe as the deacons are, are passing out, you just bow your head and close your eyes and, and listen and allow the Lord to examine you. We examine personal things. Are there areas in my life, as we come to this marker of remembrance, are there areas of my life where I am walking in disbelief as a child of God? Are there areas where me as one who has been saved by grace through personal faith in Jesus Christ, are there areas where His Word tells me this, but if you look at how I daily live out, it shows I don't really trust what His Word says. I live in a very legalistic manner, gripped by fear and performance. Well, do I really believe that God's salvation is by grace? And just as we received Christ by grace through faith, so we walk in Christ by grace through faith. I examine personally, are there areas of my life where I'm knowingly, maybe the disbelief is not a struggling to believe God is who He says He is. Maybe the disbelief is expressing itself not in doubt and fear, but maybe in things we would normally understand as sinful. There are places in my life where I'm running around 
playing the gossip. Where I have no sense of, I've, I've so hardened my heart to the Spirit's conviction, I can rattle off white lie after white lie with no concern that God is a God of truth and calls me as His child to be a person of truth. You know, gone down the line. Maybe it's sexual sin. Maybe it's financial sin. Maybe we can go on down the line. We can examine ourselves personally. Are there things in my life that are unbefitting? A child of God washed in the blood and understand if there are, the table is not here today to go, well, you sorry Christian, get your act together. The table is here to remind you that even as a child of God, when you rebel, Jesus still covered that sin. And in His loving grace, it is to call you and bid you to come back and go, you know what, Lord, this is ridiculous for me to play around in the pigsty of sin when I am your child. But there's more than just a personal examination going on. There's a corporate examination. Listen, look back up with me here in, in 1 Corinthians 11 at verse 17. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. Do you catch the irony of that statement? I hear that when you come together to be one, you're divided. We've already seen, if you were to go back and look, they've divided over who their favorite preacher is. I'm of, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Jesus, I'm of... They're divided over issues of sexual morality. They're divided uh, over issues of uh, uh, in the home. They're divided, we'll see here in a moment, they're divided uh, on issues of, well, those who have the money, they get to feast. Those who don't, they're divided economically. We'll see later on, they're divided over whose spiritual gifts are better. They are divided in about every way you can think up a church to be divided. And Paul says, you don't understand. You don't understand because I hear that when you come together, division exists among you. For there must be factions among you so that those who are proved may become evident among you, meaning I, I, I guess it's fitting there's factions so you can see who the real people are, isn't jab of irony. It says, therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your own eating, one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have homes in which to eat and drink? Do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. Here was what was taking place in the Corinthian church. When they would celebrate the Lord's Supper in the early church, it resembled more of a feast than, than the simple way that we uh, observe it in more modern times. And in that feast, what was taking place is those who were wealthy and had means in the church would come first, and they would gorge themselves on the feast, so much some would even get drunk on the wine. Meanwhile, those who had little they might not get anything. And they turned what was to be a time of remembrance where no matter if you are rich or poor, male or female, slave or free, every one of us is at the same spot knelt before the throne of God. Not one of us gets favoritism on the basis of those things, the way the world plays favoritism, and a time when the taking of the Lord's Supper should force us to break down all the walls of sinful society. 
the Corinthian church erected even more. So Paul will tell them in verse 33, so brethren, when you come together and eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him come to home. Let him eat at home so you will not come together for judgment. And he says, the rest of your issues I'll arrange when I arrive. Church family, when we come to the table, we don't just examine things personally between us and the Lord. This is also a time to examine things between me and, and my church family. Are there divisions that I have created? Is there someone in here who I know I have sinned against and the Lord's telling me I need to go apologize, but I refuse to do it? If that's the case, I encourage you during the invitation. If you know that's what the situation is, you don't need to sing. You don't need to come down front. You need to get up and go apologize. Are there any ways in which I have contributing or I am contributing to divisions inside of the church? Think about how many churches in America come together and meet in one place but are far from being one body, marked by the unity and the fellowship of the truth. They know the truth. They know the tradition. They know this represents the blood of Jesus and the broken body of Christ but there's no transformed living by it, and yet we find time and time again we'll divide. Historically, we've divided over ethnicity. Today, we will frequently divide over generational differences and styles and preference. We'd love to think that there's not economic favoritism, but in many churches there absolutely is. Are we sure so favoritism to the people who have the good charisma, who know how to entertain? We need to understand, church family, when we come to the table of the Lord's Supper, it is a reminder that there is no place in this local body of Christ, in this local expression of the family of God, First Baptist Pflugerville, there is no place for ethnic, generational, economic, or any other kind of favoritism and partiality you can think up. Because all of us, in and of ourselves, are unworthy, but valued by God in a way we cannot fully fathom. And if we are here able to partake of this, it's only because we've been saved by grace through faith, which means all of us are at the same point on our knees, no matter how this world defines us. So we examine. This is a time not just to reaffirm our love for God and love for one another, but, but to realize, you realize the example Christ has laid down in the cross, who for the joy set before him endured what he did not deserve, whom out of great love and mercy, seeing our affliction, which we were not asking for help to get out of, he paid the price on our behalf in self-sacrificial, unconditional love. And when we come to this table, we need to allow the truth of the gospel, the truth of who Jesus is and what He's done on the cross and through the resurrection to examine our lives. How are we, how are we loving God and how are we loving one another? And here's the reality. It is easy to forget 
Because if you've spent any time in church, nothing I have said today is earth-shattering or rocket science. When I was younger, was up one night spending some time reading with the Lord, spending some time in His Word. And at that time, I was reading through the Gospel of Matthew. And I came to the scene in the garden where Jesus would go after after He institutes the Lord's Supper, He would take His disciples minus Judas, they would go out to the garden of Gethsemane. And in Matthew's account, there's no mention of the agony of Jesus, Jesus being in such agony that His sweat turns to, to blood. So I thought, well, where is that? So I go through the Gospels. It's in Luke. Shouldn't surprise us that that detail would catch the attention of a medical doctor. And Luke records that Jesus, He's there praying in the garden, and it says that being in agony, He began to pray more fervently, and His sweat became like drops of blood. Now, it's not some supernatural thing taking place. It is physically possible in our bodies for the capillaries uh, that go out from our veins, the capillaries, to burst near the surface of the skin. And if that happens, blood would mix with sweat, and it, and it would produce drops of blood as sweat. But you got to understand, the body has to be un under unbelievable pressure for that to happen. Now, I, I began to sit there. At that time, they would show powerlifting, Olympic powerlifting competitions on ESPN. So I'd watch these guys load up 1,100 pounds on a squat rack, that metal bar bending like a paper straw, I'd watch them turn red as they're pushing up more weight than, than a car. I can't imagine the physical stress that that body is under. The worst I've ever seen is one guy got a little trickle of a nosebleed. He never started sweating blood. I can't imagine. Jesus, what is so, what is so weighty? that your body, physically, internally, you are under such stress that your, your capillaries burst and you're sweating blood. As I asked this question, the Holy Spirit very softly whispered back, you are. Because here's the reality, Jesus was in the garden over the next several hours, he would be abandoned by all his friends and loved ones. We can identify with that. Imagine living in a world where everybody you think likes you completely and totally turns their back on you, and not only that, but maybe the one who was closest with you denies you in such vehement, profane language that everybody who knows they saw him with you go, yeah, there's no way you know Jesus because no one who's a friend of Jesus could ever talk like that. But many people have been stabbed in the back. That was not enough to turn Jesus' sweat into blood. I thought, well, what about just the physical pain, the scourging, the flesh ripped off his body, the blood loss, the dislocation of shoulders on a cross that I can describe, and I, I won't for the sake of the squeamish, but we can describe the physical horror of the scourging and crucifixion, and it will make you nauseous. 
But many men were scourged and crucified, and they didn't sweat blood. No, what, made, what was Jesus in the garden praying? Father, if there is any way, let this cup pass from me. What cup? The cup of God's eternal justice on my sin. See, if I'm not a sinner, Jesus doesn't need to go to the cross for me. But Jesus went to the cross on my behalf because I'm a sinner and the weight of my sin is so much that the one and only unique Son of God, the, 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 the physical feeling of the burden of my sin and knowing what He would bear caused His capillaries to explode and to sweat blood. I am the weight of the cross. And Jesus, for the joy set before Him, endured it. I sat there that night as the Lord just was reopening my eyes and helping me understand on an all-different level and tears in my eyes. It, is, it, is a, it stands in my life with the Lord as a mountaintop moment with God. Yet how many days is it easy for me to go, oh, Lord, I just you feel kind of distant? Do you really love me? See, it is easy for us to forget. And when we forget, we fail to examine. And when we fail to examine, we fail to remember in the right way. Church family, we come today to remember what Jesus has done on each and every one of our behalf. We need to allow what He's done to examine our lives. And out of that examination to then remember what He's done in a way that shines through our lives. What a joy it is to come to the table today because we are able to remember for those of us who have been freed from the weight and bondage of our sin by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, may you be honored in how we remember you today. Jesus, you did not die on the cross so we could bellyache and argue with each other over trivial things. Jesus, you're dying on the cross it is an objective reality that stands where it stands no matter our good days bad days what we feel don't feel so Holy Spirit you and you alone can examine each of our hearts as you do that may you find us faithful to respond it's in your name I pray Jesus amen